there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, sometimes a man is forced to defend his honor. Quentin and Roger defend theirs in Sam Peckinpah's 1971 Straw Dogs. Based on the novel The Siege of Trenchner's Farm, we take a look at our very first magnetic home video box. We start out with an examination of IB Technicolor, Peckinpah's directorial intentions, and where this sits in his filmography. Then, we're on to discussing the film itself. Everything from Dustin Hoffman and Susan George's performances to the ugly nature of this movie. We debate if this film fits in with the revenge matic genre, and most importantly, answer a few questions, including who killed the cat? All of this and more on today's episode of the Video Archives Podcast. I'm Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Thank you, Gala. Thanks, Gala. Uh, kill the Bakalov? Uh, actually, before we get started, believe it, don't worry, guys, we're not going to get into a bunch of, oh, how was your weekend? Uh, mine was weekend. Did you get COVID? <laughs> no, I didn't get COVID. So we're not going to do that shit. <laughs> but usually when we do uh, uh, an episode, and we leave. Golly usually says some shit that stays in my head, and I wish I had confronted her on the time. Uh-oh. And then, uh, like, Uh-oh. you know, six days later, I'm still thinking about it. And so it's still in my mind now. So I want to, this is dealing with old business from last week's episode about Little Darlings. Oh, okay. Oh. Just one thing. I thought it was a little bit of a cheap shot, all right, after me and Roger had talked about Little Darlings. They go, okay, well, now that the 50-year-old men have talked about it, <laughs> let the, t- uh, the young lady in her 20s talk about this. The only reason I think it's a cheap shot is because that movie was made for us when it came out. We were the exact age of the characters in the movie. It wasn't made for you. It was made for us. <laughs> you know, I'll agree with that in part because it was made for you because I wasn't born yet. Yes. 
But I feel like there were girls probably in the 80s that were going to go see that movie and that connected with it on the level that I did. Oh, I didn't. I, I'm no. not. I'm not disagreeing with it. It was just a cheap <laughs> shot. Since I'm sorry, Quentin. Since I'm the exact same age as Tatum O'Neill. <laughs> I'm sorry, Quentin, if you felt like it was a cheap shot. But I will. I'm just going to say I think a lot of people would write off. Maybe not everyone listening, but people might oh, write well, off your guys' opinions because I know, and they're assholes. All right, I uh, I agree. Yes, I agree. There's a whole lot of people who will do that, and I think they're assholes. However, and I don't think they should write off your opinions. I, I didn't say you did. There's something. I'm just, I'm just let, let you know because I listening to you guys talk about it was important because me, I didn't know that like this was a movie that guys went to go see, mm-hmm. like teenage boys. I understand now after like you guys talking about like the draw of Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichol, but like I didn't understand that when I just like cold walked in. I was thinking this is like a movie for girls. Well, I'm sure that that was where they were coming from, you know, when they made it. But I would guess 60% of everybody in my fucking junior high saw it. (laughs) I absolutely think so. But I think there's (laughs) another point to be made here. Mm -hmm. And that's that as we are literally different people, as we travel through our lives, Mm -hmm. like roughly every seven years, you're literally a different person at the cellular level. Okay, we're now returning back to, (laughs) we now return you to the Moonraker podcast. We're already in progress. But but it's it's true that you can watch a movie as a young person and have one kind of experience with that film and see one thing and have it speak to you a certain oh, way. No, no, no. And then when you're 50, obviously be able to watch the movie and have a completely unique and different experience from that original experience. And you can hate a movie and then come to love a movie and vice versa. Well, I'm sorry, Quentin. Uh, it's not a sorry. I know. No, no, actually, no, no. You know what it is? Because I don't want to be one of those assholes that discounts your guys' opinions just because you guys are too. Based on age, you don't want to be an agent. You were just being. You were just being. I was being, comically I was, snarky. I was. You were, you were being an agent. Not even comically. So I was just being snarky. <laughs> okay. Tonight we have one of our very special episodes where we don't go through three movies. We have a very hot potato movie that there is so much to talk about, and that movie is Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs from 1971, starring Dustin Hoffman and Susan George. ABC Pictures presents Dustin Hoffman in Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. Uh, most far out film I've seen this year. Experience. I thought it was a fantastic movie. Very violent. You had to have it in there. I was shocked. It was frightening. I felt hatred because the last part really got to me. Really exhausted, really drained. Horror. It was an excellent movie. That made me feel sort of sad. Oh, I just dig violence in movies. It's frightening. It's the kind of film that builds until you practically double over in your seat. Totally devastating. Dustin Hoffman has outdone himself. He really outdid himself. The culmination of all the other roles he's played. I couldn't believe that Hoffman could ever play a role like that. He just totally stepped out of his own way. Sam Peckinpah, who uncaged the Wild Bunch, now unleashes Dustin Hoffman in Straw Dogs. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. Straw Dogs is playing a three-night run at the new Beverly Cinema. Get your tickets to see a Sam Peckinpah masterpiece in Ivy Technicolor on Friday, February 17th, Saturday the 18th, or Sunday the 19th. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For more information, visit thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema. All things on film. The box is beautiful. It's a magnetic video box. Uh, It's white. It's got that 
fantastic poster, the Straw Dogs poster with his yeah. broken glasses and black and white on the front, a bunch of stills on the back. And in the description, right off the bat, mm -hmm. In uh, in parentheses, and I'm wondering if this is because of the poster itself, the poster design being black and white, it says color. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> like they want you to know, hey, man, this video is in color. And that's in parentheses right off the bat at the top of the sentence. Color. David, a quiet young American, moves with his English wife to a seemingly peaceful town in Cornwall. The villagers, disdaining David's reticence, begin a subtle harassment growing steadily more violent as David continues to avoid confrontation. Ultimately, David is forced into commitment. Dot, 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 dot. Dot, 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 ellipses. Mm -hmm. And then there's a quote at the bottom. Do you want to read the quote? Yeah, it's from Newsweek. It's hard to imagine Sam Peckinpah will ever make a better movie. It flawlessly expresses his belief that manhood requires rights of violence. Release date, 1971. And our tape was one of the early tapes at uh, Video Archives, and it is tape number 854, and it could be found under the S's in drama. And before we even get into the movie, I've been waiting so long for us to have a movie by Magnetic Home Video. Yeah, I mean, they are a famous company. Magnetic Home Video was one of the very first uh uh, commercial video companies. Allied Artists was another one. I mean, they almost created the business. Well, they 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 did. They they did, and actually, uh, and they really ended up uh, fucking over uh, uh, ultimately 20th Century Fox because before there was ever even a thing of selling films on home video, when it like was not even a blink in an eye, but it was still kind of existed. Magnetic Home Video went to Fox and said, like, Hey, can we license some of your movies to uh, release on video? Well, no one had ever really heard of that. Why the hell not? So a lot of the first magnetic home videos, it all had a special box. This is not the kind of no, normal. This is once like videos kind of started becoming a little bit more commonplace. Now they, they, they put the poster yeah. on the box. But all the other magnetic home videos all had this one kind of little look and design inside of that. But they're all Fox movies. So it's like Torah, 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 Patton, uh, the Poseidon Adventure, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. I mean, there was literally no home video market. It mm -hmm. just, there wasn't one. And, you know, and so tr truthfully, through magnetic home video, all these Fox movies started coming out. Then people realized that there was this video mm -hmm. thing going on. The studios realized that. So they all started their own video lines. Paramount Home Video, Warner's Home Video. Fox couldn't. Because they had to deal with magnetic home video. Yeah, their entire catalog was tied up. Yeah. So, and, they, and so when the boom hit, so the big video boom. So it took them so long to get into the business. And that's one of the reasons why when Fox did open up their line, they made a deal with CBS. Yeah. That's why it's CBS Fox. Every magnetic video always started the same way with this like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Through special arrangement with Cinerama releasing, magnetic home video is proud to offer you this Exciting entertainment on home video cassette. Da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da. <laughs> and they had that fabulous kind of Chiron yeah. effect, 3D Chiron effect. And so it was just like, it was just music to our ears. Like magnetic video, magnetic video, magnetic video. It was just music to our ears to put it on and listen to it. But the other thing that's so great about this particular tape, 
there was all kinds of uh, releasing companies that were like Merrimax or were like New Line along the along the way. All right, uh, Cinerama releasing was one. National General Pictures was one. Yeah, little companies cranking out movies, yeah, was, catalogs uh, of films. City Cinema, all right, was was CBS's film distribution line. Uh, but what happens? What, what's happened, especially in the last 15, 20 years, is these companies go out of business, and then one of the studios usually ends up buying the library and absorbing it. Consolidation. You know, Orion, whatever. You know, Orion for a while bought the. Uh, uh, AIP library. Mm-hmm. And then whoever bought Orion got the AIP library. Yeah. But what will happen is, okay, so if it's Warner Brothers, say, who bought Orion, and so that now they also get, that's not the right lineage, but the, now they also get the AIP films. When you get it on DVD or you get it on Blu-ray, it's Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers presents. And they'll even go out of their way to slice off the studio logo that starts at the front of it. They won't go into the movie and where it says American International Presents, but that shot of the blue sky yeah. that you see for AIP and then like the little A. They'll cut that out. Yeah, they'll cut that out and put a Warner Brother logo Yeah, I've known there. lots of producers who insist on having the score of the movie lap yeah. the uh, presentation credits so that their credit can yeah. foreign d- distribution right. producers that do that so that you I, can't I, cut out so their I logo. So I can guarantee you on the Criterion straw dogs, you're not going to see the ABC Pictures International logo, which is, which has, beautiful which has logo. The, the, the black ABC ball with ABC and then the ball turns into the earth. Yeah. And then kind of around. rolls off to the side into like a strip of film or it's something that's unspooling out of so the earth. so fucking cool. Yeah. It's really cool. It's so fucking cool. And, and just Forget about it. if you saw it at the theaters, it would actually have started off with the Cinerama logo, yeah. which was really cool, and then go into the ABC logo. Well, it was super cool too because these are all done on an optical printer. They're not, yeah. you know, done with any kind of computer graphics, and so at least that logo. Yeah. And then also, yes. and so it has all that kind of Xanadu kind of feel. No, I to actually it. think that 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 world was a model. Oh yeah, the no, Earth no, was a model. The Earth is a model. It's, yeah, that's yeah, what I'm okay. saying. It's, oh, yeah, yeah. it's not. It's I mean, not computer graphics. It's not yeah, computer yeah. graphics. It's all practical. <laughs> like I love that logo, art. man. I it's love art that. and an artist making it. One of the things that I read online about our show that I this is my favorite comment. It's a dig at me, but I liked it a lot. I thought it was very <laughs> funny. It's like okay, um, as if the Quentin Tarantino everything must be 35 millimeter <laughs> film wasn't obnoxious enough. <laughs> Now the Quentin Tarantino, everything must be VHS, is even worse. Yeah, yeah. it's a contradiction. Uh, uh, You're confusing us. (laughs) I think it's like I just, it's insufferable either way. All right, but this is even more insufferable. Yeah. All right, or even less defensible. I think is from where they're coming from. But this tape of Straw Dogs is a perfect example of why this is such a wonderful format for this film. And I watched uh, within the last two years, well, no, uh, three years ago, I watched the Criterion Blu-ray of it. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice. What's special about this Straw Dogs transfer is you can tell, it's obviously taken from a print and we like that. We love it. We can see the little bit of the dust, a little... But this, it's obvious it's taken from an IB Technicolor print. Yeah. And that's not the case on these other things. This is, a, this is actually taken from an IB Technicolor print. Why don't you tell the audience what IB Technicolor is, Quentin? What IB Technicolor is, it's a, it's a process that literally does not exist anymore. And 
for reasons I've never understand, can't be brought back. And I, I, I don't understand that. I've tried. Roland Emmerich tried. It's just, we can't do it. So what an IB Technicolor print is, it's shot on Technicolor film, but the print itself is made with these extremely, extremely vivid, colorful dyes in it. And these dyes do not fade, unlike Eastman Color. Eastman Color will fade, and then you, you get uh, uh, red prints, or things start turning, or they start fading, or they just go red. Uh, IB Technicolor prints, they can shrink, they can warp, they can do all that, but they don't fade. Those colors are there to last. They're there to stay. The last movie to be shot uh, with releasing with IB Technicolor prints, I do believe, was Godfather Part Two. Hmm. You know, so into the seventies, they were still doing. Yeah, and in fact, Technicolor took on a very brown look um, throughout the seventies. Yeah. You can see movies like Being There and Harold and Maude, I believe, were also shot in. I don't think Being Being There is after. Well, yeah, maybe it was just Harold and Maude. Harold then, and Maude makes sense because it has that kind of chocolatey um, yeah. feeling, which a lot of which, the by the way, is perfect for for uh, Straw Dogs, yeah. which takes place in Cornwall. Now, my understanding of Technicolor, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's what the, it's, it's just three strips of film. One is shooting red, one is shooting green, and one is shooting blue. So you have an RGB palette. Yeah. They're all shooting black and white film. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the film that's being recorded that's in being the camera. Recorded. And then they have this technology which basically takes all of those and then the registration of getting all three of those to align perfectly mm -hmm. because you understand you're shooting three separate images mm -hmm. and then converging them together. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason it doesn't fade is because you're shooting black and white film. Yeah, yeah. And one is and there one is only shooting the red, one is only shooting the blue and one is only shooting the green. And then you have to register them together perfectly so that there's no Mm -hmm. uh, phasing. Um, phasing, you know, between them. They have to be or perfectly ghosting, aligned. Yeah. And what this comes down to is uh, machining and tooling, which is no longer done in Hollywood. And the IB aspect of it is actually just the printing of the print. And that it's just, they just use these great dyes yeah. that just do not fade. What got replaced when IB Technicolor left is a new thing that, that was not as perfect as IB Technicolor, but LLP. Right. And if so, you get a print in LLP, then it's lot less likely that it will fade, yeah. even though it could still fade. Yeah. The most colorful one I have is one of the most colorful movies ever made, as I have an IB Technicolor 35 millimeter print of the Yellow Submarine. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's a movie that would benefit it's from- It's fucking amazing. It's like, it's, 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 a, it's a trip onto it. That movie already is a trip onto itself, but that is truly a trip onto itself. Now, getting into Straw Dogs. So let me just, uh, I'll start, I'll start it off. Um, Sam Peckinpah is, as you might imagine, is, is, is one of my favorite directors. He's one of my favorite personalities. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, as much as I love Sam Peckinpah, I really only love four movies. Mm. I think the two masterpieces he made are The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs. And the other two movies that I really, really love, even though I don't, wouldn't call them masterpieces, but I really love, are the next two, which is Junior Bonner and The Getaway. And after that, I really, 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 really like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. But to me, it's like a series of set pieces. And some set pieces you like more than others. However, the set pieces that I like, like uh, the capturing of Billy, by uh, uh, James Coburn 
It's Pat Garrett, you know, as that Bob Dylan, la 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 That scene, and then the scene when Billy gets out of the jail and then takes over the town. Those scenes are as good as any scenes he's ever done. They're just absolutely fantastic. But all the other ones, I don't really care for that much. I'm not really a big fan of Ride the High Country. I think... Uh, Cross of Iron is overrated. I'm, yeah. I, I'm not really just, a, I'm not really a, 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 that big of a fan of them. They're okay, all right? But, it, you know, it's all about those four. But those four, I love so much that he still is one of my favorite directors. But to me, this is one of his masterpieces. Now, I, I had just seen it about three years earlier when I watched the Criterion version. I had a, a screening of it with a bunch of uh, uh, uh my wife and a bunch of our friends, and we watched it, and it was fantastic watching it with a whole audience of people who had never seen it before, and they were all really caught up in it, and it was very, very exciting. But what was really nice watching the movie now, especially in like a direct comparison to um, The Wild Bunch, is how truly challenging this movie is. And what I mean by that is something that, annoys me about directors who do violent movies is oftentimes uh, when they're called to task on it in an interview and they're put on the hot seat about why they did some of the things that they did. It's been forever that directors would like, well, you know, I wanted to be hard. I wanted to be grueling. No, no, it's not meant to be fun. I don't even understand anyone would think that this is entertainment. It's not entertainment. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this is supposed to be horrifying, and I'm going to show you the horrifyingness of it. And then they'll come up with all these other excuses for it. And Scorsese did that with, with, with Taxi Driver at, at the time of its release. Um, Peckinpah has said things like that. Uh, all the directors said things like that, you know. Um, I think that's a bogus argument when it comes to the Wild Bunch, which is absolutely generally cathartic at the very end. Nothing about Straw Dogs is necessarily enjoyable. It is a rough movie. It is rather horrific. The final retribution at the end isn't, oh, wow, this is cool. You know, uh, Dustin Hoffman's fighting against them. No, it's just ugly. And it's just grueling, and it's just really, really to be honest, rough. I was really profoundly disturbed by his emotional violence against her mm-hmm. constantly. Like th- that was hard to get through. Okay, well, look, and okay. it's persistent. Okay, well, so in the movie, Dustin Hoffman plays uh, a guy named David, who's obviously a, a New York intellectual, almost pointedly a Jewish New York intellectual. <laughs> um, who's a mathematician who gets hired uh, to uh, write some sort of a a mathematic textbook or something. Yeah. And um, he's given money to go away to go and write this. And so he's just married this beautiful uh, young English lass, uh, Susan George, playing a character named Amy. And so through situations that we never are privy to, they decide to go to her hometown in Cornwall, England to get a little cottage out by, uh, 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 you know, out on the hills and, uh, uh, and for him to, you know, you know, lock himself away and work on his figures and write this textbook. And then she's kind of back home where she, where she grew up. Yeah. He wants the quiet so he can work. And, mm-hmm. 
And this he, is where she grew up. They could go anywhere, but they decided to go to her hometown. And she's a really hot pants looking little sex pot. All right. When she, when she yeah, shows no bra. Up. It's, it's 19, yeah. uh, 69 yeah, or but so. that's when people were wearing, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's, that's, but not necessarily all the other women in the town. All right. You know, um, but you know, she's coming from a modern place. For, her, for sure. Not. Yeah, yeah. She's coming from even more than London. She's been in America with him. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pull from the book. Mm-hmm. In the same year that man first flew to the moon, and this is 1969, the movie was made in 1971, so this is 1969, and the last American soldier left Vietnam, there were still corners of England where lived men and women who had never traveled more than 15 miles from their own homes. They had spent all their lives on the same land that had supported their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and unknown generations before that. Dando marries its own, was a local saying. In neighboring towns, this was often accompanied by knowing looks and shaking heads. Dando, they said, had married its own for too many years. <laughs> so it's a little bit like deliverance there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which is the implication of David Warner's character, who's this kind yeah, of yeah. local um, local guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the few outsiders who did buy land within the boundaries of the two parishes might spend a lifetime without hearing these secrets. For some things could not be told to strangers, and a stranger could be any man whose father had not been born in the parish. The outsider might hear hinted references to things he did not understand. He might ask, for instance, why a certain pasture behind the woods, which stood above the village Dandovmanacorum, was called Soldier's Field. He would be told that ancient history that a soldier was once murdered there. He would not be told that there was one man still in the village who had been in the field the night the soldier's head was hacked from his body by a hedge cutter's billhook. He would not be told that there were men and women who could still remember their fathers being out that night when the soldier came from the barracks at Plymouth and met 12-year-old Mary Tremaine on the road at the Four Ways Cross and how the men came from the farmhouses and cottages in the Dando Inn when the soldier, a deserter, a man of some strength who had crossed the moor on foot, was caught. Only the men who were there could tell what was in their minds as they slew the soldier, each man taking his turn with the billhook so that all would have taken part. The men of Dando, as the area of the two parishes was usually known, had been apart for a thousand years and more. And when the outside world threatened them and their land, they knew the best strength of their own apartness. A family had to guard its own secrets. Mm -hmm. So... Peckinpah changes it from uh, where this takes place. And maybe there are Cornish people mm-hmm. there in um, Dando where, where the book takes place. Mm-hmm. But Peckinpah consciously makes these Cornish people. Mm-hmm. Now, the Cornish people are an ethnic minority. Mm-hmm. They have their own language. They have their own culture. They are completely a separate people. No, it could be like... A, a, the Welsh people or, you know, Celtic. Or, sure. Yeah, yeah. And it was the Cornish Americans who built all the great bridges and mm. uh, highways and uh, did all the great work on skyscrapers and everything. They were the ones who did all of the super hard labor that no one else would do. And so there's these, uh, uh, there's this guy who's sort of like the ringleader of, uh, uh, you know, the local pub hanging out uh, uh, rabble, all right, that live in this town. And they all grew up with her. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, so the lead guy sees she's back in town and like, you know, uh, oh, hi, how you doing? You, you even remember me? Yeah, of course I remember you. You know, then when the husband's away, he goes, yeah, you know, there was a time that, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. That time's over. That time's over, pal. You know? Yeah. Uh, like we used to date. 
yeah, like yeah. Seven, it, seven years ago. Or yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, whatever. You know. Um, but the thing is, uh, they're the local guys in town, and they're the you know they're the bricklayers. They're the 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 people that build houses, that build garages, that build walls, that go and dig wells. These are the lads that do that. Yeah, and uh, so. They need all that stuff done to their house. There's a garage that needs to be built up. And uh, it has a rat problem. They got a rat guy there. His job is catching rats. So these guys are on their property working. And then just little by little by little. And it's one of the greatest things about the movie is, as opposed to every revenge matic I've ever seen before and almost every revenge matic that we've talked about, Everything that happens is just a little by little by little. Things are pushed a little too far, a little too farther than that, then a little too farther than that until they spiral out of control. The rope just keeps tightening and tightening and tightening. And the thing about it is at first, Dustin Hoffman just seems like a odd duck, you know, to these Cornwall pint swillers. (laughs) And he is a little intimidated by them to some degree. And they see that. And then they start kind of mocking it a little bit. They 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 think he's they think he's a figure of fun, and they think it's funny that this hot pants girl marry this little milk toast. And Susan George is watching all this happen, and you know she knows these guys, so she knows he doesn't even quite realize that he's appearing like a fool or he's appearing like a dupe to them. But she does; she sees it, and yeah. you know, and she's losing and she's getting contempt for him because he doesn't see it. And uh, so she starts pushing him. You know, like something goes missing, something happens to their cat. And she goes like, go out there, confront them, talk to them about it. You can just say, hey, we're looking for the damn cat. Have you seen him? Just see their reaction, you know? Uh, Or just fucking confront them or throw them off the fucking property, you know? Be a be a fucking man. He's wanting to hide inside of his equations and and, and work on his little math thing. And he's he's non-confronting anybody. And by the way, uh, I think at this point in the movie, uh, uh, Amy's 100% right. I mean, if you can't respect your man in your house to protect her and protect your house and your property, then how can you have any respect for him it, at all? It was an amazing pivoting point, too. Yeah, yeah. Because she starts off the movie being a little brash and, mm. uh, you know, kind of bothering him and annoying. She's almost playing it like a little girl, like a nine-year-old or something, bothering him while he's trying to do his work. Well, she, and, I, and it can be annoying. And then suddenly there comes a point where it pivots. You know, you're right. God, you're right. I haven't talked about that. And, because, and, and that was the exact moment that you were uh, that you were at in the story. Yeah, you're right. Because there is this aspect that she's acting like a petulant child. Yeah, and for sure him. that Pod insisted on, on uh, Susan George. And apparently Dustin Hoffman was sort of like, no, she's too young. It's like going to be like Lolita, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, yeah. She's, they'd even talked about Haley Mills uh-huh, yeah, at uh-huh. one point. He's like, no, no, it's too young. And Peckinpah was like, no, it is, it's Susan George. It's Susan George. And he couldn't be more right. Yeah. Susan George is so magnificent. He was absolutely going after that as, slightly. As good as Dustin Hoffman is in this movie, he's no Susan George. She's a pugnacious child yes, in, exactly. the, in, at the, in the first part of the movie. In the first part of the film. But then- he becomes the scared, he becomes the intimidated little boy. And now she's the woman who's saying, hey, be a man. Yeah, stand up. Stand up. This is our house. Yeah. What's going on here? You're going to let them do that and look at me like that yeah. and behave like that? Yeah, and- make snickering remarks when I walk by and talk about my ass as yeah. I walk by, you know, and you know, and talk about my tits. Well, then put on a bra. Oh, I got to put on a bra in my fucking house because of the 
fucking scumbags, all right, yeah. that are fixing our roof. And what after that, and after that argument, she goes upstairs, <laughs> takes her top off to to prepare for a bath with the window open, so they can all see her. Yes. Well, <laughs> she's also playing a game. All right, because she is also a, the game of my. You know, I want my husband to be a man. The game. Well, but she also is provoking these guys. Yeah. She is being a coquettish chick who is provoking these guys at the same time. She's playing a game with them, and she helps perpetuate this tension between the two of them. He's he's he precipitates it by being meek, and she precipitates it by you know by being Randy. Now, am I right in remembering that this was her father's house that yes. they had moved back to? Yes. And so it's actually, he's kind of standing in as a replacement for her father in the first mm-hmm. part of the movie. Yeah. And she's behaving like this little girl. Exactly. In the first part of the movie, while he's literally in her father's office, in sitting at her father's desk, mm-hmm. surrounded by her father's stuff, in her father's house, mm-hmm. basically as the replacement to her dead father. And it all leads to, I think, the greatest rape scene in the history of cinema, because unlike other rape scenes, it's a genuine scene. There's there's so many different levels to it. Uh, okay, they, they invite the husband to go and uh, go hunting with them. And he's like, oh, okay, this is kind of great. You know, they act like they're being friendly with him and he goes out hunting and whatever. And it's just kind of, they're, they're, they're just making a fool of him. The whole idea is to make a fool out of him. While all of the rest of them are gone, the guy she knows shows up at the house and starts, you know, becoming threatening to her, starts coming on to her. And she's like, whoa, what's going on here? Get the fuck out. No, 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 no. This is not going to happen. Now, come on. There used to be a time you'd beg me for it, you know? And, uh, and if you think about how old she is in the movie yeah, and, that yeah, they, yeah. and that they basically dated about seven years she's been away, yeah, yeah. she was that young girl, uh, Janice Hodden. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah uh-huh. Basically, at that time, basically, she yeah. was the young uh, the too young. Yeah, the too young. Yeah, <laughs> too young to be touched. No, if they girl had if that's they, flirtatious with everybody in town. No, if, if which her, is who that if other her and that guy had sex. They had sex when she was fifteen. Or correct. Something. Yeah. yeah, or even younger. He forces himself on her. She fights for a while, but then Peckinpah does the thing that makes the scene great, but put him under the crosshairs of anybody who wanted to take a shot at him is the fact that at a certain point, it becomes lovemaking. At a certain point, she's enjoying the domination. At a certain point, she's enjoying being taken against her will. Because the guy is sexy, she actually did know him, and she's disgusted with her husband. So she's being dominated in a sexual way, and she gives over to it. Yeah. And if, if, if that were just it, that would be it. It would be a rape that turned into actual a seduction and then an affair, mm-hmm. an affairish episode. But what happens, and the, and, the guy who's do, and the guy who first came over was actually not part of this. One of the half-wit guys that's in their group has had, obviously has an obsession with the Susan George character, and he shows up. Yeah, and I believe he's the brother, right? Yeah, yeah. Of uh-huh. the uh, of the uh, Janice, the yeah, yeah, the yeah. young girl in town. La- yeah, that later becomes a. a uh, yeah, he's the he's like the creepy brother and the son of the local. 
I don't know what that like a bricklaying that guy, the guy who's the ringleader, the, the, ringleader, the ultimate ring, ringleader the, of the troublemakers, the troublemaking, yeah, the father ring, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing, uh, and then he brings in a shotgun and he tells the guy, "You're not going to stop me." And then he rapes her. Now she wasn't, she wasn't asking for any of it, but whatever she felt with the other guy, she doesn't feel for this guy. Yeah, now, and now she's actually raped by two guys. Yeah. What makes the scene? challenging but also i would say what makes it art is the response peck and paw is drawing from the audience because it's unmistakably a rape we're talking just about the first guy it's unmistakably a rape for the first three quarters of it but then it turns it turns in the last quarter and in the last quarter, it starts becoming sexy. And one of the things that's really just great and challenging and provoking to an audience, which I believe an audience should be challenged and should be provoked, is how you feel about that. Now, most audience members, even though they might feel that, will claim that they did not feel that. And they're fucking lying, most of them. Yeah. All right. And he's done a wonderful job so you can understand her character. Nothing is obscure about why these people are doing what they're doing. But the, you know, but almost, you know, like the whole thing that we talked about uh, with Freebie and the Bean. Yeah. Maybe you do kind of enjoy it a little bit, but then you feel terrible for enjoying it. And then you deny that you did. <laughs> It's not like an erotic sex scene. It is the give and take. It's the back and forth. It's a battle. For sure. That they have. And we are with that battle every blow. And as it changes and as it turns to this and that, I mean, it's just fascinating. I did a little poll of uh, the reviews of mm -hmm. the film at the time and uh, just kind of pulled out some of the buzzwords that people yeah. were using eroticizing rape, mm -hmm. misogynistic sadism, male chauvinism, ambiguity, fascist celebration of violence. I mean, these were all like things that were being put into reviews. Roger Ebert gave the film two out of four stars, calling it, quote, a major disappointment. Okay. In, in, in the Playboy interview in 1972 with, with Peck and Paw, uh, um, the guy who's doing the interview, uh, William Murray, uh, gives a breakdown of some of the reviews at the time. Okay, the darker implications of straw dogs and the level of violence in the picture provoked contradictory cries from the critics. Writing in Atlantic, David Denby called it a hateful but very exciting movie. The New Yorker's Pauline Kael went further, pronouncing it a fascist work of art. Variety reviles it as an orgy of unparalleled violence and nastiness, dot, 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 a bloodbath that defies detailed description. But Times reviewer Jay Cox hailed it as a brilliant feat of movie making, dot, 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 the film perhaps is more cynical than realistic. But if this is not the way things are, then it is a measure of Peckinpah's skill that in giving voice to his despair, he came to make this nightmare seem like his own. Yeah. And there it is. Well, and it is his own nightmare. It is his dream. And then you go, he and, is the and then director. you add that with a Newsweek quote yeah. that I just read. Yeah. So now let me ask a question. Why do you think she doesn't tell David when he comes home? About the rape. Yeah. Because she doesn't tell him. So he, so he never knows that this happened. 
to his wife throughout the whole picture. He never knows that this happened to his wife. So why do you think she didn't tell? Like this is this was this is a super tough scene. Mm-hmm. And um, as you said, the reason most people were um, critical mm-hmm. of the movie was her sudden embracing. Yeah. Okay. So to me, that made perfect sense. There came a point where. Look, if if she loved this guy once, or she was his girlfriend once, it was his girlfriend, yeah, she just goes there in well, in also, that moment. He's also that's a defensive mechanism, almost. Yeah, she goes there for that moment. Also, there is this, you know, there also is this moment of like, you know, she's now with a man she doesn't respect, and I think it's a situation of why why she didn't tell him is because well, he's just proven himself to be completely ineffectual. What the fuck is he going to do? All right, and actually, if he if he's ineffectual then, well, then now she has to leave him completely, you, you know. Uh, but also, I think she also feels guilty. I feel she also feels that because she did give in at a certain point, you know, it is that thing. Oh, well, she, she was fucking asking for it. I mean, okay, now that is what the critics who didn't who didn't like the movie claimed that Peckinpah was thinking. But I think that that is what she's thinking. All right. You know, uh, you know, and she also knows that she was waving her sexuality around these ruffians like a, a, a red flag to a bull. There's a little bit of Faulkner's sanctuary in that she's being super flirty with them and everything. But ultimately, I feel like one of the reasons she doesn't say anything to him. I mean, she's been abused by Dustin Hoffman for the entire movie, I feel. I feel he is emotionally raping her constantly throughout the film. He's treating her like shit. He's he's increasing it. You know, he, he's he's um, ramping up his um, kind of abuse of her throughout the entire film. The more um, he becomes insecure. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. What's funny is, as we were watching this film, you know, and I was projecting myself into the movie, there's only one character, me, Roger Avery, an, you know, an American uh, in this movie. And Peckinpah is conscious of, yeah, yeah. of this, that, you know, the audience has, you know, of men has one person to identify in the <laughs> film. And that's Dustin Hoffman, the mathematical mm-hmm. nerd, mm-hmm. a milk toast who feels like a limp dick. Mm-hmm. Non-man hiding from you know everything. And, and by the way, Dustin Hoffman is fantastic in this movie. <laughs> he, he is fantastic, and and his slight disdain for mm-hmm. um, Susan George, <laughs> or I think or, you're overstating that, but okay. Well, I, I don't I, listen. I who, when she who acts knows? like a petulant child, he treats her like a he petulant. treats her like a petulant child, yeah. and I bet that was easy to do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, that I that I agree with. Okay, that I agree with. Now the 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 um, David and Amy of um, Straw dogs are different than the George and Louise mm-hmm. of uh, the, the, the uh, Siege at Treacher's Farm. Siege at Treacher's Farm. Which is the name of the book. Which is the name of the book. And they have a little um, description here. In a single paragraph. 
George and Louise Magruder had been married for nine years. Okay, so that already, that already changes changes everything. everything. Completely changes everything because uh, Amy and David have just been married. It feels like well, they're they're I I got the impression that they've been married for like a year or something like that. For most of that time, they had lived near Philadelphia in the United States, where he was a senior member of the English department at the University of Philadelphia. They had met at the home of the Wilshers, Maurice Wilshire, um, having married Louise's sister, whom they'd met at Cambridge. This sabbatical year had seemed an excellent opportunity to combine two ambitions, her desire to take him to England to show him her country, and his need to find a quiet place where he could write the final draft of his definitive study on Brankshire, the late 18th century diarist. <laughs> okay, so he's not a mathematician. Yeah. He's like an English studies guy. Of course, Brankshire was now part of the common transatlantic heritage, and most of the useful papers were safe and secure in America. But it had seemed appropriate that the final version should be written in England. He had been hoping, perhaps childishly, <laughs> that some of the atmosphere might rub off on him. He felt he knew everything there was to know about Brankshire without understanding a single thing about the man. Okay, that I found to be the most important yeah, yeah. sentence in almost in the entire book, because he's basically writing about someone he doesn't really viscerally understand. Like he he will never really know the truth mm. of that guy. He can only know him as an academic. And that, that, would, that would probably strike me to some degree or another. Like anybody 10 years younger than me trying to write about Peckinpah. Yeah. Yeah, for they sure. They can talk about the surface. They can talk about the tropes. They can talk about the recurring subject, but they don't fucking understand this man and they never will. Yeah. They do not understand him. If he doesn't have the tools to understand Brankshire, who mm -hmm. is his, his uh, primary interest of study, mm -hmm. how the hell is he going to understand those guys, those Cornish dudes <laughs> outside? <laughs> well said. Well you said. Know? Well, one of the things about the rape in the movie that I think is absolutely fascinating is it's not played as just horror, nor is it played as an incident that happens and then now must be dealt with as now an incident that affects the plot. Actually, one of the interesting things about it is that since she doesn't tell David, what happens between the boys in the movie and David is still not affected by the rape per se. Everything she does is, is affected by the rape, but not the scenario where everything else is going. But the point being, though, it's not just an incident and it's not just an act of horror. It's a dance. It's a drama. It's it's the drama. It's the drama of the story. Like the 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 narrative. The, the narrative is built into the rape. The drama of the film is built into the rape, and it plays out. And it doesn't have one single conclusion. To me, it was like a pot of boiling water that's coming to a boil, and it is like you, the lid is hopping mm. off of the pot. It's like. It's bubbling on the inside, and it's getting hotter and hotter, and pretty soon you're boiling over, and that's the moment it boils over. Let me read a, 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 a large section of the Playboy interview. Uh, Playboy interviewer, William Murray. But many critics thought Stardust was a work of art, and most of your other movies have been well-reviewed. Perhaps it's just that nobody is lukewarm about your work. They hate you or love you. Peg and Paul. That's great. Either way, they almost always misunderstand me. To some, Straw Dogs was a work of integrity, but not of major intelligence. To others, it was a work of enormous subtlety and substantial intelligence, but failed on moral grounds. God damn it, Straw Dogs is based on a book called The Siege of Trencher's Farm. It's a lousy book with one good action-adventure sequence in it, <laughs> The Siege itself. 
You get he's hired he's to right. Ta- he's right, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you get hired to take this bad book and make a picture out of it. You get handed a scriptwriter, David Goodman, and an actor, Dustin Hoffman. You're told to make a picture. You're given a story to do, and you do it the best way you know how. That's all. So what's all this shit about integrity and the picture not being the work of major intelligence? Pauline Kale has called you a passionate and sensual artist in conflict with himself. And she wrote in her review of Straw Dogs that it's the film you've been working your way towards all along. But that's not exactly a compliment. She's horrified by your apparent endorsement of the violence in the film. And she claims you enshrined the temporal imperative and are out to spread the Neanderthal word. <laughs> more, more. I love it. <laughs> she also calls it quote, the first American film that is a fascist work of art, unquote. Explain, please. (laughs) He didn't like that. She says the movie acts out the old male fantasy that women respect only brutes and that there is no such thing as rape, that women are all just little beasts begging to be subjugated. Amy, the girl played by Susan George in the picture, is a young, uninformed, bitchy, hot-blooded little girl with a lot going for her, but who hasn't grown up yet. That's the part. It wasn't an attempt to make a statement about women in general, for Christ's sake. But what about the rape scene? Amy is clearly enjoying the experience, isn't she? Are you saying, as Kale implies, that that's what women are for? To be used and enjoyed? Well, Pauline. (laughs) I trust that's part of it. But I'm not putting down all women in that scene. Amy is enjoying the experience, yes, at first. Doesn't Kale know anything about sex? (laughs) Dominating and being dominated. The fantasy, too, of being taken by force is certainly one way people make love. There's no end to the fantasies of lovemaking, and this is one of them. Sure, Amy's enjoying it, at least with the first hombre who takes her. The second one is a bit more than she bargained for, but that's one of the prices she pays for playing her little game. There's always a price to pay, doctor. Kale compares you to Norman Mailer and says you're both in the same machismo bag, but the difference is that Mailer worries about it. For you, she thinks it's the be-all and end-all. I like Kale. She's a feisty little gal, and I enjoy drinking with her, which I've done on occasion. (laughs) But here she's cracking walnuts with her ass. Look, what if they'd given me war and peace to do instead of Treacherous Farm? I'm reasonably sure I would have made a different picture. (laughs) But you picked the Siege of Treacherous Farm, didn't you? I didn't pick anything. I've never picked any of my films, except one, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. That's the only one I ever picked. Well, then tell us, how does it work? You're offered a lot of different prizes. I'm out looking for a job. I'm a whore. I go where I'm kicked, but I'm a very good whore. Yeah, he's a good whore. He is. I love this. It's so true. <laughs> Whatever material you're given to work on, then you proceed to make it your own picture. There's certainly no mistaking the peck and paw touch. The peck and paw touch. Read the goddamn book. You'll die gagging in your own vomit. <laughs> You'll die. <laughs> well, I did, and I don't know if it's. It, I don't think it's. It, it's not. Well, what, what you read is not that bad either. All right. Uh, That's it. Just at the beginning of the book, it falls into a lot of observation. You know, look, uh, he was tasked with something, and uh, I, uh, as I understood, the film he did just before this, was, no, Ballad Cave of Hope, yeah, was not uh, successful. Film. No, but that's his favorite movie. Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. it's always that way. Listen, uh, I, as someone who. Um, 
chose to direct a rape scene yeah. in a movie and, uh, and and thought it would be a good idea to put it at the beginning of the film. Uh, I understood the the initial responses you know that, that people have to it. No one likes to see that. And mm-hmm. the initial response is awful. And when you see a rape, especially when it's shot in a tough way, like in my film, at the beginning of the movie, nobody mm-hmm. wants to engage beyond that. They, mm-hmm. you know, if you're sensitive and you're um, not looking to have a challenging experience in a film, you might just check out right then and there. Yeah. Listen, Dustin Hoffman is in very large letters above the title, almost the same size as the title, Dustin Hoffman's Straw Dogs. Mm-hmm. Susan George is in a box well, down below. And there's a reason Susan George is in a box. Let's, uh, like, well, well, she well, is so this is the freaking movie that made amazing. Her, but this is the movie that made her a star. So she's not in Dustin Hoffman's level when Straw Dogs comes out. She is- Oh, I know. A, a, an above the, above the title actress after no, Straw Dogs. She is the heart of this. Like, oh, she is. From the moment she the, from the moment he does a close-up of her approaching, uh, walking through the village, yeah. to the end of the movie, she she's is- She's so fucking she is, magnificent in this movie. I can't, I, she's just- It's simply, and to think that after this, she went and to, to Spain to do uh, yeah. Sonny and Jed. Sonny and Jed, yeah. Literally the trajectory is she does Straw Dogs, probably gets on a plane right afterwards, goes to Spain to do Sonny and Jed. Uh, one year later, she does Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and the very next year, she's in Mandingo. And this is, you know- And in between there, she almost replaced Maria Schneider in The Passenger. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what I was getting at is, here we have Dustin Hoffman and all of his method mm-hmm. and all of his, you know, power as an actor. And she she comes in and she is not just holding her own, She's stunning throughout the film. I think she's just amazing you to can't, watch. You can't take your eyes off her. You just can't take your eyes. She's such an exciting presence. And especially when- A it, vivid presence. She's such a vivid presence. She's so alive. And- Especially when the reversal occurs. Yeah. And, 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 and also, suddenly yeah. she's like the, you know, the, the one we're rooting for. But then also, Peckinpah, you know, it's like, she's a very complicated character. She's wrong. She's right. It's her fault. She's innocent. She asked for it. She's not asking for it. All right. Uh, uh, she's all these contradictions, like the way he, real humans are when you're not breaking them down to archetypes. And Dustin Hoffman is the same way. Oh, there, well, there's no there's no right or wrong. And even that the lead bully boy. All right. He's not just this one thing. You know, it's it's a it's all a movable feast. Well, not only- like all the way through to the very, very end. These characters are not archetypes. They grow and they and you know, and then like and they'll do things you don't understand. They'll do things you don't agree with. Well, and so will the film itself. And so will the film itself. For example, um the the little Janice, the little local flirt, the yeah. 14-year-old girl who's flirting with the uh, mentally deranged or the inbred mm-hmm. uh David Warner character. Everyone in the town knows that this guy is feeble of mind mm-hmm. and cannot control himself. And But even when we get into the scene where he strangles her, mm-hmm. he's just trying to keep her quiet. Mm-hmm. So everything is a kind of a contradiction. He doesn't necessarily murder her intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's accidental. No, it's a Lenny and it's of a, mice and men. It's a mice and men type situation. And so, but, su- no, but, so okay. suddenly now, now the movie even, okay. has us, has Dustin Hoffman's character and presumably us, because I, I, that's the character I'm asked to mm-hmm. project myself into, mm-hmm. protecting that guy who is basically a child murderer. Mm-hmm. 
But even to make my point when it comes to that 14-year-old girl, yeah, she's wearing short skirts and she's wiggling her ass to get uh, the, the attention of the boys and everything. But you also feel that there is a genuine her reaching out to this feeble-minded village idiot. She actually has compassion for him. Yeah. Will you walk me home? Yeah. She's actually reaching out to him. She's the one. She, she's not marginalizing him the way the rest of the village does. That is true. However, Tom, her father, and Bobby, her brother, are constantly telling her, don't go near that guy. And yeah, yeah. even that guy's father is being told, I think it's his father, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, keep your son away from my... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there is a very clear village thing going on there that uh, is, is meant to be respected. And it shows how... I don't know if any modern people that live in a big metropolis now can even understand these characters that have lived in a village their entire life. And yeah. everybody in this village is the only people they've ever known. And just like you said, they will never go 15 miles outside of that village. Yeah, they literally say here, um, uh, the neighboring parishes of Dando and Compton Wakeley form such a place. Here, in the same generation that produced men who looked back at Earth from the blackness of outer space, existed Englishmen to whom the 200-mile journey to London was an almost legendary experience, something that might happen once in a lifetime, if at all. Mm -hmm. And that's who these guys are. I mean, are there any film critics today who even know anybody like that? Who even know anybody like Th that? That doesn't exist okay, so much anymore. does know people who've only never left their Texas town. <laughs> Or nevertheless, their, their their parish. I mean, this was the world of not too long ago, actually. Yeah. I mean, and they're talking about this contradiction in time where we're both on the moon and, you know, we yeah. have people who are living like they have, you know, for as they were a thousand years ago. But it all leads up to, and you halfway described a little bit with the village idiot guy, but I'm not going to go try to a big description of that. But, but there becomes a siege on the farm uh, where they want to take this this village idiot and have their, and, and, you know, and basically tar and feather him, or if not kill, kill him. The guy's in the house and Dustin Hoffman's looking after him. And so now they're outside. He tells them to leave. And it's really kind of interesting. They're very aggressive with Dustin Hoffman in the house and they're threatening and they're, and they're, they're getting physical, but they're still not villains in a movie yet. They haven't thrown everything away. They, right. keep and asking, when, they keep asking him. And when he says, the, and when he says, get out, eventually, as you do, if you're in somebody's house and they tell you, get the fuck out, they get the fuck out. Now, once they get outside, they're with uh, uh, the Peter Vaughn character. Who's a bunch the, of ruffians. Who's yeah. the old bastard, all right, oh, yeah. that is like the ringleader. Like, well, go back in there. Well, you know, he can throw us out. Well, go for yeah, What are you talking about? Yeah. Threw you out. Yeah, yeah but yeah. now they're- <laughs> but now, like, but now they're all together again, you know, in, in the front of the house. And now they, they start talking and they, they, they get their blood up again. The thing is, they don't even know yet that the- No, the, no, they the, don't even know that. That the little girl has been murdered. They don't even know that. They just, or, yeah, they don't even know that. So they regroup, they talk themselves into it. And then it starts becoming a thing and they're throwing rocks through the window and they're, 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 they're creating terror. And then David finally, Rogers- First movie, The Worm Turns. Yeah. All right. Uh, 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 the Worm Turns. And it's really interesting. He truly becomes the man he hadn't been through the whole movie because he's defending his house. 
He's defending his home. He's defending his home. He says, I will not let violence be committed against this house. Yeah, I live in this house. I will not let violence be committed against it. And um, and then all of a sudden, uh, David has just shows that, oh, wow, this brainy guy actually has some ingenuity when it comes to this. But one of the things, and I, I don't I don't want to go through a blow by blow because that'll ruin the film. But the thing that's so, I think, truly fantastic about this ending is, again, they never turn into the uh, 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 giggling goofballs that, you know, go in and, and uh, rape and murder Charles Bronson's wife and daughter uh, in Death Wish. They're just throwing rocks. And it's just, it's one of those weird things where it's like, okay, they escalate the violence a little bit, then something else happens, and then there's an escalation more. Yeah. And then there's a slight more escalation. And even- And it's almost, no, and even, almost nobody's fault ever. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, the this, this sequence is almost 30 minutes long. And for at least 15 minutes of the sequence, they could all just leave and, and go. All right, it hasn't escalated out of control. But then at a certain point, it does. And again, accidentally. And again, accidentally. But now there is no choice. There is no going back. There is, there's no going back for Hoffman, and there's no going back for them. And they all know it. And they all know they it. They all know, hey, everybody who's here is here. This is it now. And we've all seen okay, what's now we've happened. Got, now, we've got, now, now we've got to clean it up. Now we've got a, uh, now, you know, now we've got a conspiracy. Now we've got uh, uh, a group that needs to be protected. And Hoffman is smart enough to know that. And to me, one of the wild things about it is, and you know how much of a fan I am of cathartic violence. Nothing that happens, except for one moment, nothing that happens in the, uh, uh, the siege is cathartic. It's all ugly. It's all, there's never, it, it's not movie fun. There's no movie fun violence here. This is where... Peckinpah's talking about, I'm not trying to make movie violence fun for the popcorn eaters. His like, this is, this is the one time where it, where it makes sense. I've got one. Well, there's one. When the guy, the guy, it's, it's when, the a, guy shoots his, when the guy shoots his foot. That's well, the, there's a, there, there, I mean, I was, the, what I was actually thinking of was the trap. Okay, that's pretty good too. And and the trap is also symbolic. But it's not like, yeah. No, it's all right. Well, no, but it's, you it, actually laugh when the guy shoots his foot. It, well, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's actually, that, that's, the one, that's the one moment he gives the audience. Especially of, because of, uh, it's the father, yeah, Tom, yeah, 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 Tom yeah. Hodden. But yeah, yeah. like when he grabs that trap and whacks him in the head with it, and it you know, it's like a bear trap or something. It, it, like, oh, it's a man trap. It's for, it's for actually, poachers. Oh, it's a poacher trap. Yeah. And he's and they've made this whole thing about all the rats that are loose in this, and they're yeah. even throwing rats into the house. Oh, it's fucking disgusting! In, in, in the in that end, there, one of the most disgusting things in the whole goddamn movie. After yeah. they've broken the windows, the Rat Man, the Rat Man is called, throwing the rats, in and there. he's even called the Rat Man yeah, yeah. at one point. And so there's all this like kind of rat dialogue going on, like rat this, and then finally in the end, Hoffman uses a giant trap. So I have a, a revival review of Straw Dogs that was in the L.A. Reader from uh, February 1983, back when Straw Dogs was playing at the New Beverly. And it's from Dave Kerr and Straw Dogs. Released the same year as Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, the Sam Peckinpah film touched off innumerable debates about violence in the movies. But the difference between Kubrick and Peckinpah is a difference between impersonal sadism and an individual morality strongly expressed. 
though doubtlessly reactionary, Straw Dogs has the heat of personal commitment and the authority of deep, if bitter, contemplation. It's also movie-making of a high order. Dustin Hoffman's performance as the weak mathematician goaded into violence is still his best. I I mean, I take a little umbrage at uh, him saying Clockwork Orange is about impersonal sadism. I, it's know, a it's a treatise on on the you know the value of choice. I actually understand exactly what he means, and I can actually say it was people were very well, uh, no, quick I, well, to well no I think slag on Kubrick for being impersonal and cold. Well, uh, I, I still think he's making a strong case because I mean, if you're talking about the case he's making, I think he's talking about the violent sequences inside of it. And yeah, Beckinpah is 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 wrestling with the morality. That Kubrick is not. Kubrick's trying to creep us out. (laughs) And then he has a larger political allegory attached at the end of it. But that's really kind of highfalutin. And and, uh, uh, I'm not saying anything's bad about it. I like Clockwork Orange. No, I know. I know. I know. I I just think it's it's less. uh, He does make a political allegory. He does talk about the politics of it. But what he's really talking about is what it it means to be able to have choice. But it suggests that it's not personal. It's a high high-flown thesis on the subject of, of, of personal choice. One of my negatives about the film, and I, I would actually in- include this in a lot of Peck and Paws films, where it's, uh, um, there's, there's some directors that have an alliance with a composer. And their alliance with the composer takes them to new heights mm-hmm. and takes them to heights that they can never go to on their own. And those are magnificent marriages, whether it be Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann or De Palma and uh, Pino DiNaggio or uh, 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 Leone and Morricone or Spielberg and Williams. And there's also directors that align themselves with composers that are lesser than. And their work could have been taken to new heights if they hadn't aligned themselves with them. And I, you know, a big example is uh, 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 George Miller and Brian May. Sure. All right. It's very corny music all through the Mad Max movies. All right. Because of the, him working with Brian May. And there's a few other examples. But I actually feel- He, he balances that with wipes and things. Yeah, yeah. To try to make it- But it's, 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 it's like he needed a real composer. All right. Uh, and I do feel that to lesser than that, but I do feel that Jerry Fielding is uh, not that is not a good composer. Or not special in it. He's not special. He's not unique. I'm not familiar with Jerry Fielding's other. Uh, oh well, he, well, he's done all the Peck and Paw. He, he did most of Peck and Other than movie. other than Peck and Paw's films, is he? Well, no, he did. He did Outlaw Joe's. You go through and look at it, and th- there's not a single score you remember. There's not a right. single theme you remember. He did a lot of stuff, but none of it memorable. I don't remember a fucking, I, you know, he did Outlaw Joe's the Wales. I barely remember some trumpet kind of theme in there. <laughs> all right, but there's nothing. Where it's enlivened by Jerry Fielding's music, the uh, you know, uh, in fact, the only time it really kind of works in the Peckinpah movies is when it's like set in the movie. So, like you know, there's that great Mexican theme that plays when the guys do their walk, but that's supposed to be happening in the village, right, right. And the only music in here that really the, has the any Irish, effect, or well, no, the, 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 the Cornish, the, the Cornish the, music, no, yeah. the ba- bagpipes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bagpipes. I mean, that's fantastic, but that's set up as a thing in the film. All right. Yeah. That's that's terrific. But none of Jerry, you know, and I, I do feel that Straw Dogs with a score by Morricone or a score by Louis Bakalov or even Francisco Damasi. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
That would have been fucking fantastic. Well, maybe somebody out there can uh, yeah, take or some Morricone music and or a, see if they can do a, a version. Or a Bill Conti. Yeah, Bill Conti would be great. Would have been yeah. wonderful. special arrangement with ABC Video Enterprises, Magnetic Video Corporation is proud to offer the following major motion picture on video cassette. And we're back and we're joined by Gala Avery. Hey, Quentin. Hey, Roger. Hi there. First, I wanted just to say, okay, he's studying stellar bodies. He's a mathematician, but he's yeah, studying stellar galactic, bodies. Uh, I can't really figure math. out like well, yeah, the galactic math. I can't really figure out like what <laughs> galactic math. I've well, never heard that expression before. He's trying to figure out like the densities of the insides but that, of stars. But you know what though? Oh, that yeah. is exactly what they're talking about here. In 1969, when the first man goes to the moon, yeah. he's like the man on the moon, and he these are all the Cornish people that have mm. never left their village. Yeah, they've never. Yeah, so they've it's never like gone he's to the London. astronaut, but. As Roger said, this is based on the novel by Gordon M. Williams, The Siege of Trenchner's Farm. So where does this title Straw Dogs come from? This is where when I was doing my research on the movie, I was really surprised to find that it has a Chinese connection. Mm -hmm. And I don't speak Chinese, so I apologize to everyone out there for my terrible pronunciation. But a straw dog, which is a chugua, is a ceremonial object in ancient China that is used as a substitute for the sacrifice of living dogs. The term chugo now also means anything that is discarded after the first use. So something that you can just throw away after you use it. Straw dogs are actually, it's a Taoist idea. And in chapter five of the Taoist text, the Tao Chi Ching compares living beings to straw dogs. Heaven and earth are not humane. They regard all things as straw dogs. The sage is not humane. He regards all people as straw dogs. So it's like... Just being basically, you're something that can get thrown away. Yeah. So on the on the cover of the box, it says, "In the face of every coward, burns a straw dog." Okay. So who are the straw dogs in this movie? I think it's Susan George. Mm. I think that that's what they're saying is that because he's the coward. Yeah. Because he, in the face of every coward, you're burns right. Burns a straw he's dog. The coward, burns mm -hmm. a straw yeah. dog. Now I've seen this movie once before. Mm -hmm. I watched this back in 2014, um, actually August 16th. So pretty close to when we're recording this. Uh, my dad showed it to me because he wanted to depict to me what is a powder keg? Like what is a pot boiler? Yeah. What is this movie that like builds and builds and builds and then almost it explodes, in, explodes the end. in the end and you almost don't even see it coming because it's so intense. Well, it's like it's like you're a frog boiling and then suddenly by the end, you know, the, the frog is boiled. Yeah. And when I'm when I was younger. <laughs> that, did, that was like the worst. No, I, I liked it. I, uh, <laughs> that was funny. And, frog doesn't know it's getting boiled until the end. Yeah. And when I was younger, like that is exactly what I saw this movie as. Like I didn't see it coming on my first viewing. Like mm -hmm. because you're kind of just taken away. Now, my thoughts have changed a little bit being older. And part of that is like my anger at the synopsis of the film online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this Magnetic Home video box does not have this issue that I have with the online description. Mm -hmm. Because this, the online description states that a viol a shockingly violent side of him is revealed by her rape. No, it's not it's the not case at all. all. No, no, not, That's not, not the all. case at all. At and all. I get really upset with that online description because if you read that and then you watch the movie, your brain is like programmed to think, oh, he's taking revenge for Susan George's, for Amy's it's rape. definitely not a revenge for a rape movie. <laughs> it's that, that's definitely like a, written not. by somebody who probably didn't see the movie and just yeah, yeah. imagined the movie. Uh, yeah, just imagined it. So 
thank you to this VHS box. This is why VHS is king, because we have a description that does not lead you astray and does not brainwash you into thinking that something is one way when it's not. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think this movie is undeniably really good. Mm-hmm. I don't think, like, if people don't like it, I agree with Peck and Paul. They just, they misunderstand them. They don't get it. And I think that Susan George and Dustin Hoffman are really good in this movie. But I can't stand Dustin Hoffman's character yeah, like, yeah, yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why he's so good is because that's why he makes so me hate him. Yeah, well, yeah. it's why it was so frustrating for me because this is the one avenue I have into the movie. This is my character and this is who I'm meant to identify with. And oh my God, he's, he's such a dick. <laughs> he's a great character. Yeah. But I have nothing but contempt for oh, him. Of course. Exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and, and kudos to Dustin Hoffman for embracing that and Absolutely. rolling with it. Absolutely. So you can't even you can't imagine anybody playing this role but Dustin. No, well, also exactly. he, he and he had the power to make this movie happen. Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that description online, they say that it's a shockingly violent side of him. I actually don't think it's so shockingly violent in the end when you look at the breadcrumbs. And Roger mentioned it before, where he is like really abusive towards his wife throughout the movie. And in my opinion, it was super at least. troubling for me as I was watching it. Yeah, it was- and watching it as an adult now, I'm seeing it. I'm thinking, geez, like. First, he's really violent towards this cat that they have. Yeah, and, and, we're, and we're cat people. We like. I'm, cats. I'm a cat person. I have. I have. I love my cat. My, my cat brain. Although Quentin, me. Quentin laughed out loud when. Oh, I. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I, I secretly enjoy it whenever like a, a character is mean to a cat in a movie. Well, you must have been loving it because Dustin Hoffman's character is so mean to this cat. First, he threatens to kill the cat if it goes in his study. Then what does Susan George go do immediately after? She goes in his study and she changes the minus to a plus. She is that cat that's going in his study and futzing everything up. When Susan George isn't hungry, he's like throwing tomatoes and stuff and he hits the cat. And I know it's totally not like on purpose. Quentin was laughing out loud. And it it actually is a really funny moment. I'm sorry that cat. He actually nailed that cat. He nailed that cat. He nailed that cat. But that's like him taking his aggression out on Susan George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. 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 And she is like a cat. She even says the men have practically been licking her. And he responds, did you compliment them on their taste? (laughs) <laughs> why don't you wear a bra? You shouldn't go around without one and expect them not to stare. And she's like begging him, like, please, like, help me. Like, yeah. they are like, and maybe in one way he's right. Like, because she has a fantastic body and stuff. And maybe yeah, men yeah. just uh, stare. I just, I just, I, I disagree with that for the sense, like, it's 1971. All yeah. right. That was the, the context of the time. Yeah. In the important. last two years, all the, all women, maybe not everybody in the, all the other women in this town. Well, let's, let's talk about, there's like, Two women for like every like well, forty men. It's yeah, like there's like yeah, yeah, yeah. no the women. Only, in this the town. only other girl in the town who's even remotely like this is who she used to be, yeah, which is that little right Janice on. girl. Yeah, I mean, well, like village. it's it would be easy for like somebody uh, then or now criticizing the movie. Well, he starts the movie off with a shot of uh, uh, Susan George's nipples piercing through her sweater as she walks down, and then he widens out and like, oh my god, uh, that's the male gaze showing. Part of the reason he's doing that is he's showing this modern aspect walking through this sure. 300, if 3,000 year old village. Yeah. yeah. That's an aspect of it. This is like swinging London is walking yeah. through. It's not this, the male gaze. This it's in, everyone's gaze. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this Cornish fucking town yeah. where, like you said, people haven't. Uh, Changed their ways in a thousand years. And people haven't gone 15 miles out, uh, yeah. outside of that town. They've never been to London. Yeah. So when the cat is strangled, 
because it's to, as a cat lover, don't kill the cat. It's it's so effective, and I'm glad that Sam Peckinpah goes there yeah. because this whole movie goes there. Like nothing is enjoyable, as you guys said earlier. But he doesn't stop her from looking. He doesn't say like, "Don't open the closet door." No, and it makes me wonder. Did no, he, no, he does. I, well, no, he, I, he, he, he insinuates, "Don't open he insin- the door." But. But he, he doesn't stop he her. He doesn't stop her. I think, like, if my cat well, he got almost, strangled... He, he becomes completely ineffectual in any way whatsoever. Yeah, he, yeah. he just immediately... He walks over into a corner, practically. And, and sits and, down. And, and, and he's unable to speak as if he's, like... No, it, no if that happened to me... And my, what's, no, 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 honey. Uh, then I would explain yeah. to her what's in there. Yeah. You don't want to see it. Yeah, you don't want to look at that. And he doesn't stop her from looking. And then when she finally sees it and she screams... And she says that she tries to say the men that like have mm. been like leering at her did it because he, they're proving that they can get into the bedroom and he quote doesn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think Dustin Hoffman totally killed that cat. I, I, I've thought about th- I've thought about who killed the cat. I've gone back and forth on it hmm. because the, I actually never even contemplated. The, there that. is w- there's one moment where the Rat Man mm-hmm. says, you know, it's good to have rats around. Like more rats, uh, the more I work. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of like he's laughing about it. Sort of like as long as there's rats, I've got a job. And so the cat is basically killing okay. his livelihood. Okay, wait a minute, no, but uh, there's nothing I love more than subtextual readings that don't have to do with anything that the scriptwriter was mm-hmm. paying attention to. Dustin Hoffman's reaction when he sees the cat in the room, he didn't put it there. Okay, but here, my my one piece of evidence that he it is might a wild, have, re- it is a, an affected it, I reaction. Think, yeah, I think it is an effective reaction. But my one piece of evidence that maybe. Not that he did it, but that Amy thinks that he did it. No, that could be. Because when Well, no, she doesn't think he did it. No, because when Amy tells him, go out there and confront them about the cat, and then he doesn't confront them about the cat, and she brings the beer, and she brings the bowl of milk. Mm -hmm. And then on his blackboard, she writes, did I catch you off guard? Because she's trying to catch him off guard in that moment. Hmm. That you killed the cat, and I'm trying to see if you were the one that did it. Because he doesn't catch them off guard, and they're not really off guard by the milk. Well, like a lot of things in this movie, there is, I mean, one of the criticisms of the movie is that it's ambiguous. Mm. And to me, that's oh, the I strength. Oh, I love it. To I me, like that's that the strength of the it's movie. absolutely fact, the strength of the movie. I love that we I, I, can fact, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I, I finished my thought before when I was saying, you know, eroticizing rape, misogynistic sadism, male chauvinism, ambiguity, fascist celebration of violence. I mean, except for fascist celebration of violence, I almost agree with all of those and that they were intentional. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That the rape has an erotic side to it, Mm -hmm. that everything has a flip side to it, that Mm -hmm. he's showing this kind of, um, you know, people are living as if they're a thousand years in the past and there's people on the moon. We're in a contradictory time Mm -hmm. and everything about the film seems to be contradictory like that. Okay, let's talk about the rape really quick because you guys went over it. I just think it's extremely effective because of the editing. And we have Roger Spottiswood to thank for that. Yeah, that's right. The director of Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And amongst many other things. <laughs> I'm going to pick all, it up. That's uh, the uh, one uh, you used <laughs> to describe yes. Roger Spottiswood. You know why? I'm on a Bond kick right now. She likes Tomorrow right Never now. Dies. I, no, I... You, you admit it. But I'm going to pick it. Best of times, baby. Best of times. Yeah, yeah, with, you, wait, with, wait, wait. You, you just walked into like a landmine there no, because one of Clint's favorite films. My, you walked my into leg, a propeller. My leg, is like, yeah. my leg is like blown off right now. Like I'm like, but I love, I love his editing. Oh, it's, it's, well, he's, he's a I, master. He was a master editor. And the yeah. choice of the slow-mo mm-hmm. that 
Peckinpah uses when she gets slapped. Yeah, yeah. Is so good when, like, whenever she gets slapped, even when uh, her husband slaps her later during the siege, they use this slow-mo. And it's so good. Like, it's so effective. Well, and also when they're at that little village gathering in the in the pub, it, it's sort of like the a, church, one, the church yeah. gathering mm-hmm. that they're yeah. having, the little celebration they're having, and they start intercutting. Oh, the intercutting is so good. And, and, and they start creating this whole... Uh, village celebration, rape anxiety, being in public around people. Uh, the rape is still fresh in my mind. Like, it's super hardcore effective. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of this in this movie is when Dustin Hoffman finally gets into bed with her after she's been raped and he kisses her and they cut and she's laying the exact same way that she was laying when she got raped. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah. it's like, it makes you think about like her relationship with her husband, her relationship with her ex-boyfriend, her relationship with the second guy that raped her. Now, when you asked earlier, like, why doesn't she tell him? Okay, first off, I think a little bit's answered in the book where it's like, first off, like, your husband These people slash, don't talk. These people don't talk. And, like, she's coming from the place where it's like, your family takes care of your own. And it's like, Dustin Hoffman almost should, like, recognize that something has happened to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, she, I think she's even bruised on her face. And she's laying there crying. Like, the fact that he doesn't say, what's going on like what's wrong are you okay to any of these signs just no he relinquishes his role as the man of the house and the protector of his woman in like in every avenue that's presented to him before the end yeah and she calls him a coward and he goes no i'm not and then she says i'm a coward and he says no i'm not (laughs) He doesn't care about her and like her feelings whatsoever. He only cares about himself. And I think that's just exemplified during the like the siege on the house Mm -hmm. because his aggression is not revenge on her account, which we've kind of talked about. He learns of her rape when he, like, ties the guy's hands, like, when they break through the window and Mm -hmm. the guy's there. And the guy says, it wasn't me. It was, like, those two guys. But he doesn't really, like, register or care. And I think that's kind of okay because, I mean, people are breaking into your house. Like, you can't stop and, like, think, oh, what's going on here? Yeah. But then when Amy is just, like, let's give up the guy who tried to strangle her, too. Mm Mm-hmm. He says, I care. This is where I live. This is me. I will not allow violence against this house. It's more of the house. But he's already allowed violence against his family and his house because she has been raped. Yes. He just doesn't like recognize it. And, you know, and 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 the, and, and the thing is. It's not is, about her. It's about the house. Exactly. No, well, 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 well that makes sense. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense because the house becomes a metaphor for your manhood. All right. Yeah. And the house becomes even a metaphor for her. The house becomes a metaphor for the family. Protecting the house protecting the family however that house that's been the rape would never have happened if he hadn't just shown himself to be an ineffectual dupe if he had not allowed violence against his house earlier it is not his house it's her house. Not, okay. Neither in the book nor in the movie never, is okay, this but his it, house. Okay, but this is a Cornish house made from Cornish turf, built up like and uh, you know, and it's being fixed up by Cornish guys. It is her house. It's her father's house. It is her house. It's not his house. But by being the man in the house, it becomes the house. It should, the thing is, it should be. It should. It should. And he's, he, if he's her husband, it is his house. But he has failed already because violence has already been enacted upon his house. Okay. And one of the things that's so great about this discussion is one of the things that it just highlights compared to all these other kind of 
vigilante revenge, this kind, you know, this this type of thing. Yeah. All right, uh, this type of movie uh, that I like. I love them, even the bad ones. Yeah, I kind of yeah. like them. They're okay. still fun. They're fun, but this movie illustrates how black and white they all are, and this movie is almost problematic because it's not black and white enough. It's in shades of Ivy Technicolor. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's there's not a clear read or bead on any character in this movie. And that's why it's so good. It's why it's, it's, a, why it's a work of and that's art. Also why it's, it's why it's art. And that's yeah. also why it's rewatchable. Like yes. Why I can rewatch this movie years later and have a different opinion or see something different is because it's in shades of gray. And as far as I'm concerned... If this movie is a stake, even us right now, we've taken, we, we've chewed it three or four times and then we spit it out. All right. We haven't even really, really chewed what this movie really yeah. has to well, offer. The kind of analysis that's required <laughs> for this kind of film, because this movie, the book may just be a less than adequate book that he made great. Yeah. You know, by bringing, no, this, by, the, bringing the, by bringing himself to it. This needs like 12 pages of dense analysis on paper yeah. to truly do it in any a whole kind thesis. of justice. I mean, yeah, th- yeah, yeah. It, it, this movie is the great literature that the book kind of wishes it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm reading something in an English, you know, yeah. 101 class uh, and, and, and everything has depth and nothing is clear. And that ambiguity that people were complaining about when the mm-hmm. movie came out is the great strength of the film and it's why it persists. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you brought the rat catcher guy, yeah, my one of my favorite lines in the entire movie is when he throws the rat into the house during the siege, and he mm-hmm. says, "I don't just kill them; I breed them too." Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, "Release," because he's releasing the rats into the city, so yeah, he yeah, like has, yeah, a job. Yeah. So he has a job. Yeah, I, I love that line. He's like, "I don't just kill them; I breed them too." And he's like throwing them he's in. He's the rat man. And then, lastly, the one of the weirdest parts of the movie, because we're talking about all this ambiguity, and like Quentin and Roger talked about. When she's being raped and then like three quarters of the way through, she kind of succumbs. During the siege on the house, one of the guys, like the, not the village nitwit, but one of the many men goes up there and tries to rape her mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it's like the guy that- No, it's the guy that, with the shotgun. Yeah, yeah. So it's that guy, okay. So he tries to rape her again. Mm-hmm. And who goes up there and blows him away but her rapist ex-boyfriend? It's not Dustin yeah. Hoffman that goes up there and pushes the guy off and, like, stops it from happening. Mm-hmm. It's her ex-boyfriend. Well, you know, he didn't bring that guy along. And he was under the same—he he, he was facing the same double barrels yeah. of the shotgun that she was. Yeah. You know, uh, when, 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 he, when he deals himself into this card hand. Yeah. But yeah. I just think that's, like, even yeah, in the yeah. end when Dustin Hoffman's, like, all macho, like, I'm going to defend this house. I will not allow violence on this house. He's, like, still allowing violence on her. And it's the ex-boyfriend Well, and Peckinpah's also still giving us a kind of, you know, a moment of ambiguity mm-hmm. in that you know, suddenly this guy is doing something that we want as an audience. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And then he has the guy who's getting shot basically ask for it. Like he knows what he's done is wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's all sorts of, um, moral questions. Well, being presented constantly throughout the film. As much as these bully boy scumbags are bully boy scumbags, they're not a one note movie motorcycle gang. Yeah. yeah. All right. That just shows up as they're just, villains. The lo- they're the local guys. They're the local guys. And it all spiraled just way, 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 way out, out of, of control. control. Yeah. So 
I love Straw Dogs. I think it's a great movie. I think there's so much to talk about it. As Quentin said, we've only chewed it up a little bit and scratched the surface, but there's so much you can go into. I think it's just great. Um, I bought my copy. It is a magnetic home video. Also, apparently it's a first release. Uh, I, I This movie has been edited like through time, like because it came out in 1971, same year as Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And both movies featured heavy editing because of the violence, I believe. Well, no, Clockwork Orange was rated X because yeah. they didn't edit yeah. it, it, In the case of Clockwork Orange, he just pulled the movie he just at a certain it. point. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so apparently this is the first release. I'm not sure. I think it's the exact same one that Quentin has. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, my videotape actually comes from Killeen Video at 413 East Rancier in Killeen, Texas, 76541. Uh, there is a $1 charge if tape is not rewound. Did you guys do that at Video <laughs> No, Archives? no, yeah, It we looks didn't. like your tape is stopped halfway through. Yeah, this person's going to get a $1. Yeah, this person actually, <laughs> I wonder where they stopped. Oh, I... I mean, that's one of the great no, no, things that, about VHS is that... Uh, it's one of the things that we always would do is when I take one of the Video Archives tapes and I know I haven't seen it, all right, since, since I got the collection and I see it stopped somewhere along the way. Oh, wow, this is... This is where the customer watched it up till this point, and then they stopped. Oh, so what's that point? Where, where did they yeah, stop? Where did at? they stop? <laughs> uh, and this tape is A seven hundred seven because Killing Video put it in the action section. You know what? It has stickers on it that say action. Yeah, it's in the action section. The action section. A seven hundred seven. I guess it was a big renter in the action section there. Well, if anyone rented this tape from Killing Video, they in, should let in us Texas, know. In Texas, this yeah. is an action film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is an action. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I actually just wanted to say really quick, um, as we've been talking, I've started thinking, I'm not sure there are any actual villains in the movie other than cowardice, which is the central cause of everything. Ultimately, it's just not being a man and not standing up to people and not being direct with people. And I think the malevolent idiot who shows up with a double barrel shotgun and, and, and even though it's explained that, you know, He's simple-minded a little bit, and uh, he has this obsession. He has this sexual obsession with Susan George. Uh, yeah, I think he's a villain. Well, he and the he and the father are the closest you you get in the movie yeah. to actual villains. Yeah, yeah. And the father, but even uh, the father is just a loud mouth at the end of the day. Yeah. All right, and yeah. and he's rightfully concerned. Yes, about that guy. Who's no, 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 going uh, around my daughter? No, again, no, no. He's I mean, rightfully the concerned. Crazy That's ambi- what Peckinpah is doing. Ambiguity that Dustin Hoffman is almost fighting these ruffians to almost avenge his wife for the rape that happened to her by at their hands, but he doesn't know about the rape. And then the ruffians are trying to get into the house because of their daughter that they don't even know is dead. Yeah. <laughs> She's only missing. Thanks, guys, for listening to the Video Archives podcast. Thank you, Quentin Tarantino. That's me. And Roger Avery. That's me. I'm Gal Avery signing out, and see you guys next time. See you in two weeks. See ya. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellen. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod.
Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 